Uber escapes prosecution after covering up 2016 data breach, and why nascent security startups are ditching the growth at all costs mantra. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. Uber has reached an agreement with the US Department of Justice to resolve a criminal investigation into its massive 2016 data breach. But the saga isn't over yet. Matthew Schwartz, ISMG's executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, investigates. There's new news in the long-running saga of Uber's 2016 data breach. The U.S. Department of Justice has dropped its criminal prosecution of the ride-sharing service after Uber signed a non-prosecution agreement. So Uber's November 2016 breach involved hackers stealing legitimate credentials, using them to access Uber's private source code repository, and then stealing information on numerous drivers and riders. In total, the hackers obtained records on approximately 57 million users, as well as 600,000 driver's license numbers. The government's probe was driven by Uber's former senior management team having failed to report the 2016 data breach to the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC said Uber was required to do so because at that time it was facing a pending FTC investigation into its cybersecurity practices over a 2014 data breach. So the DOJ says its decision to drop this investigation, which was being led by the FBI, is based on multiple factors. That includes the company's newly hired CEO in late 2017 immediately reporting the 2016 breach to the public, as well as to regulators. The company also subsequently invested substantial resources to significantly restructure and enhance the company's compliance, legal, and security functions, according to the DOJ. Uber's taken numerous steps to overhaul its cybersecurity program in particular. In October 2018, Uber reached an agreement with the FTC stipulating that it will maintain a comprehensive privacy program for 20 years, as well as report all unauthorized access to individuals' personal information being held by Uber to the FTC and other relevant authorities. Finally, Uber has agreed to continue cooperating with the government's ongoing prosecution of former Chief Security Officer Joe Sullivan. He's been accused of attempting to cover up the 2016 breach by disguising an extortion payment to the hackers as a bug bounty. Specifically, Sullivan's been charged with paying two hackers $100,000 in hush money to cover up the breach. The hackers later pleaded guilty to computer fraud conspiracy charges. Sullivan's on the hook because he had been designated by Uber as being the person legally responsible for communicating with the FTC during its probe. As a side note, he formerly worked as assistant U.S. attorney for the San Francisco U.S. Attorney's Office, which is now prosecuting him. Sullivan strongly denies the allegations. A spokesman for Sullivan has previously told me that every action Sullivan and his breach response team took involved close collaboration with legal, communications, and other relevant teams at Uber in accordance with the company's written policies. 
So Travis Kalanick, who is CEO of Uber at the time of the data breach, has not been charged. And legal experts have told me that the case against Sullivan highlights a number of best practices that chief information security officers should always follow. One of the big ones is they should always keep their company's lawyer closely apprised of what they're doing and get them to approve it in writing. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Our managing editor for business, Michael Novenson, writes that gone are the days of early stage security startups promising to double sales each year while burning cash on marketing programs even faster than they're bringing in new business. I caught up with him to find out why the second half of 2022 is all about taking a path to profitability. Very good to see you, Michael. You wrote in a recent article that nascent startups are ditching the growth at all costs mantra in favor of a novel idea, profitability. Now, it is certainly a novel idea. Tell us what's happening. Absolutely, Anna, and thank you for having me on. So we've seen a shift, particularly in the Series A and the Series B phase, where historically investors really wanted to see that top line growth and see expansion and adding additional customers. And they're really looking for more, what would I call responsible growth, less of a push toward triple digit, 100% year over year revenue increases and more in the 50 to 70% ballpark. So they're not expanding as many marketing resources, not expanding into non-core markets or non-core technologies, and really healthy growth that while the startup may not be making money now, at least there's a path to profitability in the next three to five quarters for that startup. And that's really, since essentially each investor wants to ensure that they're able to exit at a profit, they understand that the folks who are investing at a Series D or C or Series D are really more focused on profits. And then that's moved down to the early stage folks as well. So it is really just causing early stage startups to have to rethink how they approach scaling and how they approach their product strategy and their go-to-market strategy. And it's not just investors who are tightening their belts, is it? It is not. We are seeing customers as well start to shift their buying behavior. And it's and it's really in certain characteristics that it's the net new customers who are facing the most resistance to adding new security technologies, that the budget isn't there. You can't do it off cycle, even if the CISO, like the proof of concept, that isn't necessarily enough. So it is harder to get those net new customers on, which is usually such a key metric for early stage startups to validate their product in the market is bringing on that new customers. And that's quite, that's harder to do now. A lot of them want to defer a quarter or two. And then even upselling existing customers when it comes time for renewals, that the security department's just facing a lot more scrutiny from the financial department to kind of hold spending in line. So existing customers will renew. And it's, it's not that customers are necessarily walking away from their existing spending with early stage startups, but in order to grow that wallet share either through existing or through net new customers is uh, quite a bit more challenging right now. Michael, what is your advice to founders of startups in these deteriorating market conditions? How should they adapt? And do you think this could be a long, rocky road ahead for them? Uh, what I heard from the venture capitalist who I was speaking with is it's really about getting back to basics here and figuring out what is it that you do best? What is the technology that you're selling that makes the most money? What are the market segments, customer size, verticals, geographies where you're strongest and really doubling down on those and not using this as a time to try to push into adjacent technologies, not using this as a time to 
trying to build out a channel and go down market, or if you're a North American startup trying to push into Europe to really focus on what exactly what it is that you do best so that you, you can show the ability to grow top line without really hampering your bottom line. The phrase that comes up a lot nowadays is cash runway and making sure that you have enough money to get through a rainy day. And the time frame people are really recommending nowadays is 24 months, uh, two years of cash. Most downturns, whether it's 2001 or 2008, the formal recessions almost never last for more than 24 months. So if you have two years of cash, in all likelihood, come 2024, if it's time to raise another round, the market will be better, conditions will be more favorable. But for folks who do need to raise money either this year or perhaps even early next year, they're going to have some tough choices to face, particularly do they take less money but try to keep their valuation and have the founders maintain their stake in the company, or do they want to raise a larger amount, which may mean either that the founders have to dilute their stake and the company have to give up a larger stake than they'd like to investors, or they have to take a cut in their valuation in comparison to what they're valued at late 2020 or in 2021. So difficult decisions coming up for early stage startups who do not have much cash right now. Well, Michael, thank you very much for these insights and for sharing your perspective on these market trends. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And finally, 2022 has been a busy year so far for the Federal Trade Commission, which has released several privacy and data security updates. Legal expert Lisa Soto of Hunt and Andrews Kurth shares the initiatives that she's watching with the most interest. Well, the FTC has been extremely active. It is fascinating to watch what the commission is doing. Three themes that I would just bring to the fore today. First, there's a focus on strengthening kids' privacy. That is true both at the FTC and in Congress. It's a reasonably non-controversial point. So it's somewhat easier than other types of data protection to protect kids' privacy. So we're certainly going to see continued focus on strengthening the privacy of children's data. I'll also note that the FTC recently came out with a statement indicating that they are essentially putting in place a de facto data breach reporting obligation at the federal level. That is a real sea change. There are no general data breach reporting obligations at the federal level. There are, of course, at the state level, there are 54 data breach notification laws in the United States, which is the 50 states plus Guam, U.S., Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and D.C., But at the federal level, we have industry sector-specific reporting obligations like under HIPAA, under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, but not a generalized breach reporting obligation. The FTC recently brought an enforcement action and then also came out with a blog post to say that in some cases, there would be a de facto breach reporting obligation. So that is going to be also interesting to watch to see whether they use their Section 5 authority with respect to breach notification, where it may not be required at the state or other federal level. And then I would say the third area to watch is that the FTC is considering a rulemaking. They would like to curb lax security practices. They also want to focus on not allowing algorithmic decision-making where it may result in unlawful discrimination, and then also focus on curbing privacy abuses. So I think those are three areas to watch and a number of others coming from the FTC now. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Music